This episode of Let's Talk Period is brought to you by the Quendo Members Hub. Get access to the tools you need to manage your condition, plus it's free. Head to www.quendo.org.au forward slash membership for more information and to become a Quendo member today. Welcome back to Let's Talk Period, the podcast for people who want all things real, raw and reputable. Ever wondered what it would be like to navigate an entirely different healthcare system in a completely different country? Well, this is what today's guest has done four times. Samit Sien is who I chatted with this week and she was born and raised in Canada in the US as a first generation Indian Canadian before moving to London with her husband and then to Japan with her family. Now Samit calls Sydney home, and in this episode we talk more on her journey with PCOS, endometriosis, and most recently adenomyosis as a result of undergoing a hysterectomy. We talk on all things pre- and post-op hysterectomy, and what it's like to try and navigate the different healthcare systems all over the world. We really think you're going to love listening to this one. Samit is so open, honest, and vulnerable, and I can't wait to share this chat with you. Here is Sumit. Sumit, welcome to Let's Talk Period. Thank you for having me. Uh, I was so excited when you reached out. I love when people use our little section on the website to reach out to be a guest on the show. It's always so lovely to hear from people and listen to their stories. So thank you for wanting to come on. My pleasure. So I'm not sure if you know, but the way we start our podcast is the same for all of our lovely guests. And we like to talk about how they nourish their body. So can you tell us for the listeners what's something you've done to nourish your body today? Sure. Um, So today uh, my husband actually uh, got us a really nice coffee and and breakfast. Um, It's a rare treat at the moment because we have two small children. So after he dropped them off, um, it was nice to have that time before he got signed back onto his work. Um, and also, um, it's kind of body, but more mental health. I've been trying to be good about doing a daily journal, few minutes every day of what I'm grateful for, what went well, what I could improve on. So I tried to do that this morning as well. Mm-hmm. That quality time is so lovely as well. That's not interrupted and I don't have children myself um, yet, but I can imagine trying to get some time with your partner to sit and chat isn't the easiest of things. So that's really lovely. And to have a coffee, also a good thing. Yep. And in Sydney, it's raining and cold this morning. So it's, it was perfect. <laughs> oh, that sounds like a great way to start the day. And I love journaling as well. We had one of our other guests mention that before, and I think it's something that people don't talk on very much, but it has so many amazing benefits. So I really love that. So it was one of my goals, like when I found out um, that I needed a hysterectomy, um, one of my goals was that I need to just pen down these these thoughts and, um, you know, it's going to be a long recovery process and I don't want that to just all be in my head. So, so far I found it quite useful. Yeah, it's almost like cathartic in a way, getting those thoughts out of your head and onto the paper. 
Yeah, it's just a nice way to deal with um, the physical pain and just the hormonal changes and um, you know what your body has just been through. And, and sometimes you may not want to sort of speak to someone about it. You want to write it down first. And I think that's helped. I'll write it down and then I feel more um, encouraged to speak to a friend or my partner or sister or someone about it. That's such a positive thing. I love that. The next thing we often talk about is our toolkit and people with chronic conditions they often have a range of therapies, strategies or items that make up this toolkit that help them to manage their health. And I'm sure you're the same, like most of us. <laughs> Is there something that you would recommend that the listeners add to their toolkits to help them manage their health? Um, so uh, just a background, I was diagnosed with PCOS in my early 20s um, and I had very little knowledge about endo or adeno at that point. Um, I was just told you have PCOS and you have very heavy periods. That was it. Um, so what I added in my toolkit early on was I need to just move my body. And I wasn't really into sports or anything like that, but I loved walking. I loved walking the dog. I loved going on hikes. Um, I was living in England at the moment. So there's really beautiful walks you could do in the city or in the countryside. So that became kind of um, therapeutic for me. Um, and it helped with a lot of the, the pain and just the excess body weight as well at that time. So I found that quite useful. Um, recently, when um, I was told in a very short period that you, you will need a hysterectomy, um, I found reading and listening to positive stories really beneficial. Um, I think like what I found in my pregnancy as well is sometimes women are surrounded with stories that are so negative and or kind of dismissive. Maybe that's the, the better word. And I just thought like I need something to really uplift myself and show that, you know, people have gone through things in much more difficult circumstances and come out the other way um, and made their life really positive. So I tried to, I tried to do that. Um, and also one of the podcasts that you had um, with the Paralympian. Um, oh, Monique. Yes. I found, I, I, I remember listening to that and I found her story so um, empowering and uplifting. And I think that's, that's something I started doing very recently um, and it helped a lot. It just does so much for your mental health and, and you feel like, you know, you, you can kind of see someone else's life that they've gone through this difficult path but come out shining and it gives you kind of hope for your own situation. There's so much power in hearing other people's stories and especially like positive ones and I know not every story has like a positive ending or at that season of time. But when you're going in for a procedure or you're experiencing really chronic, horrible pain, there is that drive that you want to hear other people's experiences that they're now doing so much better. And there is light at the end of the tunnel. Like, yes, you will make it through. You will be okay. And um, I think a hysterectomy, people often just say, oh, you know, it's just a um, minimally invasive procedure. You'll be fine. It's okay. But 
it's a big thing to undergo and it's scary. So you need those experiences of others who have had something similar to share and go, okay, I can do this. And it's like a mini pep talk for yourself. Yes, exactly. Um, that's, that's a good way to describe it. Um, a mini pep talk. Um, as I didn't, as I explained to, to you as well, I didn't have a lot of time to prepare for the hysterectomy. It was kind of like I was thrown into the deep end and said, okay, we're doing this in like two, two and a half weeks. Um, so another thing I would say that I added to the toolkit, which I actually didn't do before, um, was um, to speak to a counsellor. Um, and that's also how I found out about Quindo, because what I did was I was, I like Googled like hysterectomy support line or anybody I could speak to, whether it's a medical or more like mental health, just to sort of speak through my, talk through my concerns and anxieties. And I couldn't really you know, I, I didn't get very far. So I spoke to a, um, a woman counselor over the phone twice before my surgery. She called me the day before the surgery as well. And I just found it really helpful. Um, it wasn't anything medical, but she just helped um, sort of speak with me about my anxieties, the fears, and um, also one of our ideas is, you know, sort of say a kind of farewell to your uterus and grateful for the service sort of that it did provide and I thought that was a very interesting way of looking at it because I had these feelings of like anger and denial and shock like you know I felt like I was grieving all totally okay feelings to have as well yeah and at the same time you know there was a lot of people who are trying to be helpful, but it was like, oh, well, you've got, you're lucky you have two kids. And I'm like, I don't feel very lucky right now, apart from, yes, I do have two kids, but I feel like I'm 35 and this is not something a 35-year-old woman should be going through. That's how I personally felt at the time. Also, at this point, I've never really had and or you know mentioned even though i had all the symptoms for years and years so it was like so much to process in two weeks um you know so that just having someone to speak to i found so helpful and then i found out about kendo and um let's talk period podcast literally the week of my surgery and i listened to some of the podcasts and read articles and it Again, it goes back to the positive stories. You just heard other women who went through similar situations and you learn more about these conditions. And I think it was so helpful. Oh, that's so beautiful to hear. I'm glad we could have helped you on your journey. (laughs) Thank you. Now, I want to take it back just a, a little bit or a lot to when you started experiencing symptoms or what that sort of journey was like or that process was like. Sure. So um, I believe I had my first period at like 13, 14, and my periods were always heavy from day one. Um, I have two younger sisters and they have the same, you know, symptoms as me, nearly the same. So um, I was quite lucky. I think that my dad even was very you know, understanding and supportive, and he would make sure we, um, you know, had the right nutrition at that time, and um, we were hydrated and stuff. 
Even if he had some discomfort, I think, about this topic, he didn't really show it. And I know um, other people from maybe South Asian, Indian backgrounds may not always have the same experience. Um, in some cultures, periods are still seen as hard to speak about, especially with men or taboo subjects. But I think I was quite lucky that my dad was really supportive and, and open. Um, but yeah, going back to your question, um, always very heavy at school. Um, I would sort of bleed through clothes and it was very embarrassing. <laughs> um, bed sheets, that sort of thing at home. Um, I didn't really take much pain relief. I think, although the situation was very supportive at home, I think because me and my sisters had these heavy periods, it was seen as kind of normalized. Mm -hmm. um, my mom had heavy periods as well, actually, and we all had bouts of anemia since we were teenagers. So I think it was kind of seen as like, it's just something that we have, unfortunately, but there was never like a name or anything attached to it. So um, one day my sister, I think she was 14 or 15, and she started hemorrhaging, basically. She was rushed to airlifted to a hospital um, and she had lost something like 70% of her blood and she needed blood transfusions. It was very just from her period. Just from her period. Um, and that sort of, you know, made us all realize this is not normal. Um, and we've all have different sort of degrees of it now. Um, but even after that, uh, none of the doctors could sort of really pinpoint why or, or what. And I found that quite distressing because it's like a 14-year-old you know, teenagers going through this and no one can actually tell us why. Yeah. It's just, oh, you have heavy periods was the best we could get. Um, and then in my early 20s, I had moved to England by this time um, to be with my husband who is from England. Um, and there was a period of almost five to six months where I just did not get a period. Um, so I, I went to the doctor and I said, look, I've documented this and I haven't had a period at all, not even any spotting. And then that sort of started a process of scans and blood tests and everything. And it's, okay, you've got PCOS. Okay, it's good to have a name. Um, yeah, something is associated. <laughs> yeah. But apart from giving me a few pills, I, you know, it was like, here's some pills and let me know if you have any uh, questions. Uh, in a few months sort of thing. I was like, okay. And how frustrating for you? Like what, what do you do with that then? You're like, okay, cool. It was basically sort of, okay. So you don't, you're in your early twenties. You obviously don't want children yet. Um, so just take these pills. And then when you're ready to have children, just get off the pills. It was kind of seen as very black and white, um, which was very frustrating because, um, for a woman, it's it's not just fertility and infertility. We're more than that, um, which is some of the frustration I had with what when I was processing this hysterectomy. I feel so grateful that I had have my two children, but it's not as easy as just that. You know, we're more than yeah. just <laughs> being sure. <laughs> 
so that was that was quite a frustrating experience and that's when I said okay maybe I'll try and eat a little bit better I'll, I'll walk more because I enjoy walking and see if that helps improve my symptoms um, and I think I was on different pills for about six or seven years and then I got off the pill um, and it took about maybe five or six months again for my periods to regulate and then I felt comfortable um, to start uh, thinking about having a family and I was about 29 at the time uh, yes yeah 28 29 I just find that still like crazy that doctors and like there are some incredible doctors who don't do that which is absolutely important but I still can't fathom how there's still people out there who just brush you off and say well this is what you have come back and see me when you're ready for a family or this is what you've got um you know there's not much we can do for you or this is just how it is it's just not okay (laughs) no not at all you're living in London and you've lived in Canada as well is that right yeah so you've lived in London you lived in Canada and now you're in Australia. Have you lived anywhere else? Japan. (laughs) So we've got London, Canada, Australia, Japan, four very different healthcare settings. How do you begin to navigate the care that you need when you have that chronic condition? Talk us through that. It was, it's tricky. It's tricky because every, um, country has this sort of different like you said different healthcare system different set of doctors so you're constantly having to repeat your story and when we moved to these countries um i was at different stages of of my life so in north america i was kind of you know i lived there from birth till 19 or 20 and then i moved to the uk when i was in my early 20s and had my first child there. So you're kind of going through these stages. And I think that's why I was seen as, oh, infertility, fertility. Like when you're ready to start having a child, let's think about it then, um, you know, and you may need some fertility treatment and you may need this. That was sort of the blanket statements kind of said to me. And I've, I found that frustrating. Um, and it was only after I had my child when I started digging deeper and um, when my period started after my, having my child, I said, this, it just doesn't feel right. They're so heavy, heavier than ever before. And the pain, like I've get pain in my back, pain down my leg, other, um, you know, pain that you just don't even want to talk about. Um, and I was passing clots. And every time they would do a scan, they're like, okay, we kind of see a cyst. Let's, why don't you come back in a few weeks and the cyst is gone or we don't see anything. Um, let's try some pills or do you want to go back on the pill? And it was, it, they were just throwing things at you to sort of mm-hmm. uh, put a bandage on the symptoms. Um, and not really digging deeper. No, not really digging deeper. And um, in the UK, um, you do have private healthcare, but most people go through, um, which is kind of similar to Medicare here, the NHS system. Um, so if you want to see a specialist and go through private care, your GP has to refer you. But 
they never felt it was anything that they really had to refer me for. Like your pap smears are normal, your scans are normal. So I think it's just your body readjusting after birth. You know, again, it was very normalized. Like this is just what women go through. Um, And that was incredibly frustrating. Yeah, so not okay. (laughs) And this was the same time when I um, was working as a chairwoman for the maternity services liaison uh, committee, which was basically we liaised between um, the maternity department in our local hospital and the local community of women for like their antenatal and postnatal needs. And that's where I sort of felt like women really need to be empowered about their um, choices. And even in, you know, this sort of healthcare. Uh, so for example, the fact that they wanted to see the same midwife every time, you know, and these sort of things that don't seem like they should, uh, you know, be so troubling, but it was just something that wasn't happening at the time. So we were kind of giving these women a voice about more choices and being able to speak about um, their health as pregnant women or, or as they became mothers. Um, and it's there when I thought about, like, I was born in a Western country so I can speak English, I can advocate for myself, and I, I'm, I've grown up feeling empowered. But what about if you come from countries or if English isn't your first language and you can actually advocate for yourself? So I felt like that was a really important um, turning point for me. And it was shortly after this when I moved to Japan where I could not speak the language. I mean, very basic um, communication skills. And I was pregnant now with my son. And I couldn't really advocate for myself in the same way I could in the UK or in North America. And I sort of felt what it it would have been like for these migrant women in in the UK who couldn't speak up about their healthcare. So... um, that you know just to be in their shoes was quite interesting that's such a interesting experience like you said like I think a lot of people don't get to experience how it would feel to be on the other foot or the other shoe or the other side and not being able to advocate for yourself is so distressing in a way because trying to get people to listen to you or like not brushing you off when you have those concerns would be so difficult and just make that push so much harder yes um so so when I got to Japan and I went through the birth um the obstetrician she she was bilingual so that was great but many of the things that I had Uh, got accustomed to in in the UK like the birth plan and the certain sort of things that I wanted she had not even heard of and she's like one of the best obstetricians in in Tokyo and it it just boggled my mind that it just wasn't that same kind of empowerment even though the level of care was excellent they were scanning me and they were doing blood tests and everything was great Um, but just the fact that I had put you know, put a plan together and she was just taken back by it. She's like, oh, usually people don't do this. I'm like, okay. So that was quite an interesting experience. Um, and I was very vocal about what I would like and what I, what I don't feel comfortable with. Um, 
but it, it took some time because I could see a level of discomfort with, with her. Um, and again, uh, the, I noticed the change as soon as my son was born and the periods resumed after maybe a year or so. Um, the periods were so strong, so heavy, and getting heavier clots and things. Um, I was getting back pains like a week before pain down my leg. The same sort of thing I had with my daughter, except it was more intense. Pelvic pain as well. Um, I went back to her and she said, I think maybe you'd benefit from going uh, on the Morena IUD. Um, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll try it. And I think maybe I lasted five or six months and I, I had to ask her to remove it because I was spotting daily for months, horrible pelvic pain and back pain and um, pain when having sex as well. So it's just kind of gone back to even worse than it was. Um, and at that point, she's like, I actually don't know what else to do for you. I've, I keep scanning you. Again, sometimes she would see a cyst and a few days later it would kind of disappear or burst. Um, you know, my iron levels were dipping lower because of this heavy blood loss. And she's like, there's very little I can do for you. We've tried them and we've tried pills. Um, and again, because I was in a country where I didn't speak the language very fluently, I just didn't really have the means to go beyond this and to find someone who specialized um, in, in things. And she obviously, this was not her specialty. She was literally an obstetrician and general gynecologist. So of course she tried her best, but I, I just felt very um, deflated. And I could see myself getting weaker because of the blood loss. Um, and it was several months. And then I thought, okay, I know I'm moving to Australia soon. So maybe, maybe there I'll find <laughs> someone who will understand what's, what's going on. And so you've moved to Australia. Talk us through that. So you get here. What do you do? How do you go about it? Tell us. <laughs> okay, so this is kind of like my last hope. Um, hopefully, you know, third time lucky. Um, so I went to my local GP and she was a really lovely woman. And I spoke in depth about my history. And she also examined me at that time. And she said, to me, it sounds like endometriosis or something similar, given all the symptoms and, and especially it seems to be stronger after you've given birth to your children as well. Um, so she said, I think you would benefit by, by seeing a specialist. You've had scans recently in Japan and they didn't pick up anything. And I was really lucky to find a um, lovely specialist in um, Sydney uh, who kind of specializes in endometriosis and, and other um, women's health issues. I saw her, I think, a couple of weeks after that, and she arranged for um, a, a, a scan, and she also did some um, checks at the time in, in the office. Um, the scan came back negative. They couldn't find anything, um, apart from, of course, the PCOS, which we already knew. So at that point, it was just like, okay, you've already tried these pills. You've already tried these, this IUD. Um, 
see how you go over the next few months. And this is when the COVID-19 um, kind of pandemic, everything started happening was March, April time. So I sort of just got on with working from home and thought, okay, maybe, um, you know, it'll get better and I'll call her back in a month and see how it goes. And then it was the beginning of June. Um, I had just returned to work, um, like, from working from home to back mm. in the office, we'd had a gradual return. And my period had started that week. And um, I was sitting in my, at my desk and I noticed, you know, I had blood through my chair. And when I got up, I thought I was going to pass out. Um, the in, just this intensity and I was having like spasms um, from my pelvic area and it was, such a strange and um, overwhelming pain. I, I just said to my boss, I think I need to go home early today. I had no idea what was going on. I made it home and um, kind of slept the whole day. In the morning, I couldn't get out of bed. Um, and I was told to go to the emergency uh, department at this stage. And when I got there, um, they basically said, your iron is low, you're your um, hemoglobin levels are kind of borderline low and they started iron infusions at that stage. And I was quite dehydrated, so they gave me fluids as well. And the emergency uh, department doctor said, you really need to be checked to see if you have endometriosis or something similar. So when I told them I had tried the Marina IUD and pills and all that, um, they said, you should just either see you know go to the clinic in the hospital or 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 ring your specialist back asap um and that's what i did they she managed to see me uh maybe a week or so later and when we walked through everything um she said just given how much blood loss you went through and at this point, two or three weeks later after iron infusion, I was still dizzy. I was still unable to sort of walk around. I was just completely wiped, <laughs> um, wiped out uh, and the back pain and everything. She said, this, you know, I can't, I can't sort of say for certain if you have endometriosis or adenomyosis or something similar, but given the facts that are in front of me and that you haven't responded well to these things and we don't want to risk another month where it drops even lower, um, we, I highly recommend a hysterectomy. And at that point, because I'd not heard of a lot of these things, mm. it floored me. Um, I was just taken back. Um, the most I heard was from my sister who said maybe an ablation would be good that's what they recommend women in North America when they have really heavy periods. And when I asked my specialist about it, she said, just given the severity of you know, the situation, maybe an ablation would work for you for a couple of years and then you'd have to come back. Mm. And I'd probably recommend a hysterectomy at that stage anyway. So given your history and given that you, you, know, you have a, a family, maybe this, you know, I would highly recommend this. And so it was kind of a no-brainer at this stage because I was, I was kind of in bed for two or three weeks at this point due to this severe blood loss. And I just couldn't imagine going to that next month, you know. Mm -hmm. 
It's so, also that grief though. Like it's a no brainer in some ways of you don't want to be in that pain anymore. But the grief that you mentioned previously about, you know, people say, oh, you've got children, but it's taking that right away to have more or. That, that for me was the hardest part. I kept feeling like, but I'm only 35. I hear about women needing hysterectomies when they're much older. My mom didn't need one. Why do I need one? Like you have all these, all these, you know, thoughts in your head and exactly what you said. I had my first child at 29, 30 and the second one at two, uh, three years after that. So my son's not even three yet. So I, I felt like, oh, I just, I went through all of those years of being on pills and trying to figure out what's wrong. And then I had my two children. Luckily, I didn't have to go through any um, infertility treatments apart from just being on the pill for a, a long time. Um, and then suddenly this happens, you know, two, two years after having my, my second child. So yeah, it's, you feel one is, are you too young for this? It is, is this really the only option I have left? And, um, the fact that you will never go through that joy, um, you know, of, having a child of being pregnant again. And also, as much as I despise my period, especially the last few months, it just became a part of you. Like that's part of being a woman. Mm. And I I mean, I, I don't know like how they'll feel now when they're kind of that's not going to be the case. So it's I'm I think I'm still processing it. Um and for for me, it was more that the age thing. It really hit me. I'm like, this is not what I expected. I had no idea um, that I could even have anything apart from PCOS. That that, that there could be something other uh, other things at play here. And then suddenly, this is your only option. So um, for me, it, it was that. It just if I had more time to process and prepare, maybe my mindset would have been different. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I think, I think I've made the right decision. Recovery has been, um, up and down. Um, of course, like you said, it's a major surgery, but, um, having been through what I went through at the beginning of June, I, I just don't think my body could have gone through that again and again. What would you say to someone who is considering undergoing a hysterectomy or, what tips would you have for them pre and post operatively? Um, in terms of, you know, think about is this, if you've exhausted all options, like I think I did, um, just make sure in your mind that you feel like you've exhausted all options, that this is the correct path for you. And um, rather than going through different treatments, for every couple of years. Um, so I think it depends on the person in, in, that, in that sense. In terms of pre and post, I think speaking to a counselor twice helped me so much, especially the day before. It, it's like what you mentioned before as well, but like a pep talk. She really helped me with that. Um, and she spoke a lot to me about self-worth as well. She said, you're more than just a mother. You're more than just a vessel to make a baby, <laughs> um, which I thought was, you know, a good way of putting it and to sort of 
say, uh, be grateful and just sort of say goodbye to that part of your life um, in a symbolic or meaningful way. Um, apparently in North America, some women have like goodbye eaters parties and stuff, which I thought was quite... I should cool. make that a thing here. <laughs> <laughs> they had like a cake and everything. I'll, have to, I'll send you a picture. Of it. Yeah, yes, um, please. On Pinterest. <laughs> so maybe something like that. Do something nice for yourself. Um, and for me, it was it was reading those positive stories, um, inspiring stories that other women um, went through. Um, so I think the, for me, the mental health component was really important to just get my, because it's such an anxious time, you, you think anything can go wrong in the surgery and what will happen um, to me. And I had all these fears and anxieties, but those really helped to just make me a little bit more um, courageous about what was you know going to, to be ahead especially during COVID times when you can't have family and visitors with you my husband literally had to say bye to me at the door which I thought was so sad that's so distressing in itself because I'm a massive crier um every time I go into surgery I just bawl and so I can't imagine going through an operation during COVID and how isolating and lonely that must have felt. Yeah, that, that was quite hard because I, you know, I, I just wanted to like hold his hand or something to distract me, but said bye to me at the door. And then they said, he can't come and see you after he has to come the next day. So, um, you know, but I was so sedated and out of it the first day that I didn't wake up till in the middle of the night or something. So it maybe worked out for the best. And don't be afraid to ask ask for help. Um, I I think at the beginning, the first week, I focused so much on the practical because, like I mentioned, I have two small kids, so do is all the laundry and um, I cooked lots of meals and we froze them and. Um, that's when I realized I'm focusing on all this practical stuff, which is important, but I need to think about my own mental health and how I can prepare. But in terms of practical stuff, if, if you, you know, if you don't have a lot of family around you, um, the freezing meals really helps the first few weeks. If you want your own home cooking and stuff. Um, I just tried to make the house clean and, and then we hired a cleaner as well to help because you know, you kind of can't bend or do anything for several weeks. And my husband's working from home. So, you know, he's busy as well with that. So that helps. Um, what else? Uh, I bought some comfortable clothes and I bought myself white pajamas as a treat. I'm like, I can finally wear white again. Amazing. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> white pajamas. So that was my, that was my big splash. Um, I got like a nice, u-shaped pillow uh for back support some heat pads all the things i thought I, that would be useful to my recovery um and a new uh, journal so i could really write down my thoughts every day about this recovery process and what i was feeling um as well so those those are the things that really helped me to just having all those things around me um and then post op the first week I was mostly um kind of bed sofa bed sofa um but last week I walked a little bit around the neighborhood really slowly um but it would make me tired so then in the daytime 
kind of after lunch, I'd sit on the balcony and just read a book and just really soak that sun up. And, and that felt really nice. Um, I also downloaded lots of podcasts and audiobooks and got so many books from the library as well, just so I could use that time for myself, um, which I think as a mom of two children, a uh, two-year-old and a six-year-old, it's so important. So it's nice to actually, that's helped my recovery that I could just do things that I've put off for a while. Like I love writing, I love reading. So it's nice to be able to do those things again, you know, when they're at school. So that's been positive, the recovery. Absolutely. And I really think it's important if it's in people's capacity to do those things that can make it a little bit easier post-op. So getting a cleaner, if it's in your capacity to do so, or even asking, you know, family or friends for help, if that is um, within their means. I know not everybody has family close by and with restrictions and things, but it really is those little things that help can make help to make a difference post-op when you're just not feeling your best self. Exactly. Um, maybe like get a facial or a manicure, pedicure, some, something like that beforehand as well, because it may be several weeks until you can do so again. Um, mm anything like that to just, like you said, nourish yourself, uh, treat yourself a little because what you you go through is so major and there's so many emotions. So I think it's nice to, to do that for yourself. Treat yourself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what do you wish you knew about your conditions or condition um, beforehand and how do you wish it was handled differently? Um, in terms of the PCOS, um, I feel today there's so much more information and there's, there's support groups and great podcasts and websites like yourselves. Um, so I think one thing was period tracking, like how important that is, not just if you want to have children, but just for your general health. And I think that really should start from school because like many of us, our periods were heavy from day one, like when we were 13, 14. So like a period health kit or, or something to show that, you know, these heavy periods are not normal. This is, it shouldn't be normalized just because every woman goes this monthly cycle or, or you, should, you know, a healthy woman will go through this. And just to kind of break that, um, and especially in some cultures, to be able to speak up when, when you know, their period is, is not uh, sort of regular. Uh, I would like to see that from an early age, more um, like a kind of checklist or toolkit. The same way we do like pap smears and routine health exams. It would be amazing to have something like that done from teenage years. Um, and... Maybe this exists, I haven't looked into it, um, but also more resources, like we spoke about before in, in other languages. So women who are migrants or maybe their English is not so strong, how can we you know, approach our GP or how can we go to a specialist when I'm facing these issues? Not just in the case of, I want to have a child or I'm having trouble conceiving, because I feel like it's always just geared toward that or perhaps that was my experience and kind of go beyond that 
So one is like, like I said, break that normalizing feeling of, oh, everyone has periods. Sometimes they're heavy. Um, so you can actually get the help you need. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, I thought I was quite read up about women's health issues. And I literally knew so little about endometriosis and adenomyosis. And that's what the doctor was suspecting me of having for so long. And she found some adenomyosis after, um, which is what, you know, it was, and also some, a huge cyst on my fallopian tubes. Um, so because we were just having normal scans, these things were, would never have been picked up. And even though now when I look back, many of my symptoms match up, no one was sort of um, taking that seriously. Yeah, connecting the dots. Connecting the dots, yeah. And also I think... My pain threshold maybe was a bit high. I didn't, there was very few months when I would use pain. I'd usually just use heat pads or things like that or just get on with it, especially as this happened after I became a mom. So I think you go into this survival mode because you have young children. And, you kind of, and you've just got to push whatever you've got going on to the side yes. and just make it work. And I think that's something a lot of people fall into and – they build up these incredibly high pain thresholds where they just push through until their body literally just screams out and says, Hey, enough's enough. Um, like what happened with you at work by the sounds of it. And that was like one of the first times I had to uh, sort of leave work early or miss work because you sort of feel like I need to now tell someone I have to miss work because of my period, but that's actually okay. Um, but we, we, you know, we were raised in a society where we're told to like, no, you shouldn't miss school or work for your periods. But if you are, that means something is not right and you should see someone. Uh, so those are the sort of misconceptions and taboos. I think I mean, it would be great if we can squash from, from day one. And that's something I'm certainly going to teach my six-year-old as she gets uh, older and moves into her teenage years so she feels more empowered and ready um you know to face these these challenges if she goes through similar experiences as, as i did passing that on to the next generation is so important because hopefully by then there will be so much more research and through talking about periods, talking about pain, endometriosis, PCOS, adenomyosis, there won't be the delays in getting a diagnosis or fingers crossed there'll be a cure or, you know, more effective treatments. I hope so, yeah. And I hope women are are really taken seriously. Um, it's not a normal thing to have periods this heavy or to have these sort of symptoms. So, um you know, my advice is definitely speak up and and don't feel ashamed, don't feel silent. Um, we have to empower each other. Mm. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners today, Sumit? Um, what else? Let's see. I think going back to um, one thing I may not have mentioned was the length of time I was on, on the pill, for example, when um, I was first told about PCRS, there were so many assumptions um, because, like I said, I was in a relationship, I was married, about why it was so many years until I, we, dis, we had our first child. Um, so 
all these assumptions um, and these kind of thoughts or statements people make to you at the time, it can be quite, it can be quite difficult. Um, and you sort of feel like is, is, you know, is something wrong with me and will I have to have this fertility or infertility treatment? Um, and I wonder if some of that, you know, sort of stops them from digging deeper when things, when things go wrong. Um, and for a while, I think that was what I went through after I had my children, my periods return. Part of me was like, well, they're regular, they're on time, they're every month. This is better than they used to be. So I was kind of holding on to that, like almost like, is my PCOS cured now? Because I've had two children. Now I have periods every month. Um, some of my, my skin seems a little bit clearer. Some of the external symptoms seem better. I'm healthier in some other aspects. So I almost felt like it was kind of cured and cleared and I didn't dig deep enough at the time. And I think there needs to be more understanding of it, if and when you do have children, what happens to your conditions then? Do you go back on the pill? Do you go back on medication? Like this, there should be more of a continuous plan. And I know moving countries as I did probably didn't help that. Um, and that's something I need to, you know, I wish I had sort of understood more, like what happens to your body pre and post. Um, and that I really should have, I wish I had um, the kind of courage earlier to go to a doctor rather than wait till I ended up in America. I think it's something a lot of people struggle with though and trying to get people to listen to you. And when you are being brushed away so often, it is hard to continue to advocate for yourself and continue to trust yourself because then you start to question, is this actually a problem? Is there something wrong with me? Is this normal and I just can't handle it? Like you end up with all of that doubt. So I definitely think trusting yourself and knowing that what you feel, you know your body better than anybody else. And even if, you know, you, the scans don't show anything and perhaps other blood testing normal, if it doesn't feel right to you, like you said, keep digging and keep going back to your specialist because no one should go to that level of pain. No, they shouldn't. So, mate, thank you so, so much for joining us today on Let's Talk Period. It has been an absolute delight chatting with you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Stella. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Period with Sumit Sian. Loved listening to what Sumit had to say and want even more from her? You can find her on Instagram at London Odyssey. If you want to keep updated with what we're up to, you can follow us on Instagram too at Let's Talk Period AU. Let's Talk Period is an independent podcast, so the best way you can help us out if you do feel so inclined to is to subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. It would be amazing if you could leave us a review as well or just simply tell a friend or family member about our little show. This helps new people find our podcast and grow our beautiful Let's Talk Period community. Let's Talk Period is a production of Quendo, a non-for-profit organisation supporting anyone affected by endometriosis, adenomyosis, PCOS or infertility. Let's Talk Period is produced for educational purposes and the information, recommendations and topics talked about does not constitute medical advice or take into consideration your personal circumstances or medical history.